This is the morning brief from the Economic Times. Friends of mine recently headed to Masai Mara to watch the incredible migration. But dropping them off at the Mumbai International Airport, I too had the opportunity of watching another massive migration. Scores of younglings sniffing goodbyes to parents and friends. I had a ringside view at the departure terminal to the great student migration. Over 6 lakh students each year head out of the country to fulfill their academic ambitions and this is still just a fraction of those that actually applied and hoped to make their getaway. And despite a crashing rupee and massively escalating cost, the brain drain is just not slowing. We explore why and where all the freshmen are fleeing and if the Indian education system is just flawed or purely failing. I'm going to be joining Oxford University in the fall. Every student we spoke to had exactly the same list of colleges they were applying to. I think that mixing and matching and giving students more choice along with a core foundation program is the direction that these institutions need to move in. And I think soon people will realize that there's no point going to university number 50 in America. I think more and more innovation will be taking place in which dual degree programs is going to become the norm and this is where there is enormous potential for India and Indian institutions to look at the world. It's the 6th of September. I'm your host Anupriya and we're exploring the great student migration with a student, a counselor and top-notch homegrown education brands Ashoka and OP Jindal University here on the Morning Brief. Let's start at ground zero with the subject itself. The student Tri Agarwal, a recent grade 12 graduate from a top IB school from Mumbai, is going to help me understand what is really going on. Tri, welcome on the show. Hi, thank you for having me. All your bags and ready to go, Tri. First up, where are you headed? I'm going to be joining Oxford University in the fall, and I'm studying politics, philosophy, and economics. Wow, that, that sounds a lot for an 18-year-old, but all the very best. <laughs> just the decision to go abroad i mean is it now a given when you join an ib school i'm just trying to understand the student psyche at this point hmm. so i think that it's not a given of an ib school but i think that there's a certain environment in like the social circles that we're in which where, where it is at some point like a given that like oh yeah your kids probably going to go abroad which is why like for example in my batch of 113 kids two children are studying in india everyone else is going Uh, like you know abroad but there's also the fact that the ed- there are like a lot of like concrete reasons why people go abroad the education quality is so much better the fact that you know there's a some level of a certain independence the fact that you get better job opportunities so yeah it's kind of default how early did this process start for you and what was the order was the what you want to do or where you want to go what was the order of sort of uh, research and prioritizing IB schools especially start the process pretty early so i started doing counseling with school in ninth grade but i'd been thinking about like going to college and like dream universities and stuff since like eighth grade because that's the environment that school kind of creates right you hear your seniors get into like yeah and harvard and stuff and you're like oh you know i want to do that and these are people that have taken like similar life decisions to you and you you can see yourself doing that as well 
in terms of whether you pick the subject first or you pick the college, that depends a lot on like the student individually. I know a lot of people who picked like the college over the subject, especially with the US, because there's so much room to explore in the US that as long as you're at a good institution, it, it doesn't matter. You can change your major at any point in the first two years. Right? Even the major that you apply with is not the major you necessarily have to study. So it can be very much like, oh, I, I'm, I'm saying I'm going for environmental engineering, but I'll end up doing computer science. I'm saying I'm going for you know, liberal arts, but I'll end up doing like finance. It's very possible to do that. So while you were making these decisions, uh, Treya, and you were in conversation with your counselors and your friend circle, were any Indian schools making into that for it, or was the decision final that I want to go abroad and here's all we can, all I can do, or was it this is what I would like to study and these are my best options? Okay, so for for most pre-professional majors, people some people do take into account Indian unions. People who don't know what they do, want, what they want to do, do not consider India. Like they rarely ever think about like any Indian universities, mostly because Indian universities don't have that space to like you know experiment pick classes, drop classes, do, you know, minors, majors, declare your major later, all of that flexibility that's available in the US isn't available here. So that gets knocked off pretty fast. From the ambition of going abroad to the application and then finally the acceptance, the journey is long, sometimes tedious, and well, it takes a village to execute. The prep for the great migration is not just schools and parents. There is, as some of you may already know, an entire ecosystem of professional advisors that are guiding students to determine their drive as well as some point their destinations. A recent study showed that there are as many as 1.4 million career counsellors in India, but even that number is falling short of demand. Speaking to us today on The Morning Brief is Kim Dikshit, founder and CEO of The Red Pen here in Mumbai. Kim, thank you so much uh, for joining us here on The Morning Brief. Thank you, Anupriya. It's a pleasure to be here. I hope I can answer some questions. I'm sure you'll throw great insight with your experience and interactions with many, many students. Kim, it's been over a decade since you started Red Pen. Start from that point. What led to this decision? How did you see this market? Was it a need? Did you foresee a growing demand? Yeah, so we did perceive a need in the market. I wouldn't say, you know, that we went out and did proper research market analysis or market research analysis and figured out there were this many customers and sort of a proper business plan was not sort of the the, the origin story. It was more organic than that. And, um, you know, it just came from the fact that people approached us. They had really genuine questions that made us see that there's a big gap in understanding about what people sort of think it means to go abroad, the expectations, the preparation needed, and also what U.S. universities are looking for. So based on questions that we were getting through friends, family, um, professional networks, and, and different people, we kind of figured that there was a need for this. I think, so, you know, some of the, the gaps were just things like, you know, the colleges that, that exist. I think that every student we spoke to had a, exactly the same list of colleges they were applying to, regardless of, you know, their interests, their preferences, their choice of uh, course of study. And so, you know, seeing that people didn't have the right information to make good decisions about where to apply and how to apply was kind of really the, the, the starting point. In your opinion, is it the IB school culture that has boomed, that has pushed or given more aspiration for people to go abroad or have more IB schools been present in, in, especially in a city like Bombay more because kids are wanting to go abroad. So they're catering to that need, something that universities have not kept up pace with in India. 
Yeah. So I guess you're asking, is it well, it's a chicken and egg problem? <laughs> you know, what came first, the desire to go abroad or the IB schools? I feel it's a reflection of what families want for their kids. I mean, parents and, and educators have all kind of just, just realized that exam focused learning isn't perhaps the way of the future. And so the IB in particular does give a much broader base of knowledge and better skills at learning. I don't think that there's a craze and people are just running after the IB for no good reason. There is a good reason. And I think people are very intentional about it. Kim, I want to come across the best fit philosophy versus the Ivy League ambitions. How do you balance expectations and hard sell that strategy to parents that have such high ambitions for their children? So explaining strategy and logic to people does become challenging. Um, I mean, I do think that people have a better understanding of what different colleges offer um, that aren't in that branded segment. And I can tell you that college Y that you have never heard of, there is a great fit for you, but no employer in India knows the name of that college. That is more important, right? If you think your, your child is going to have to come back to India and look for a job and you know, no one's heard of their college. It's really hard. And I think, you know, it's really hard to, it's a hard sell. I have sympathy for those families. I can understand why they feel that way because it's expensive. It's really expensive. Kim, last word from you. I I saw on the Red Pen uh, website, as I was scanning through the various offerings you have, there are a list of Indian universities as well. Mm -hmm. I want you to reflect on what's happening in India in, in terms of the undergrad. There are a few you know, universities coming up, private universities, especially in the liberal arts. The professionals have always been there, the national law schools mm-hmm. or even the, the tech-oriented or the fashion-oriented. But in the liberal arts world as well, now you've got a bit of a step up coming in. Where do you think that gap is right on why students who are willing to pay 3x the amount are not willing to look at an Indian university at this point? Yeah. I mean, that's a really good question. I think that it's changing a lot and we've seen such a huge change in just five years in, you know, universities, Indian liberal arts universities doing so well. But I think that the more um, traction and the more of a um, reputation the Indian liberal arts colleges get, the more we will see families and students kind of decide to stay back. People are very risk averse when it comes to education. So, um, you know, they'd rather take, you know, a, a sure thing in the U.S. that's maybe not their first choice than take college in India that they're just not sure about. So let's turn a page now to a new chapter that's being written in the Indian higher education, the emergence of education brands outside the traditional professional streams. Ashish Tavan needs no introduction, who's pioneered the journey with Ashoka University. He's also founded a Central Square Foundation, a non-profit organization that improves the quality for education for children in India. And now on the board of trustees for Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation as well. Ashish, that's a fairly long and impressive introduction. Thank you so much for being here on The Morning Brief. Thank you. It's my pleasure. I read an article, Ashish, that you had recently written about weaponizing Indian education towards employability. We've been speaking to career counselors. We've been speaking to students to understand. And that is the big resounding concern. Many who have been choosing liberal arts in India saying that it's leaving them jobless. How do you think the higher education system now is tackling that problem? Yeah. I think when we say liberal arts, you often mean that Somebody has studied English literature and they're jobless because they may not necessarily have the skills to get into the workforce. When we at Ashoka talk about the idea of a liberal arts and sciences education, essentially 
we're talking about what the NEP 2020 has encapsulated very well, which is the idea of a multidisciplinary and holistic education. You know, for people who go to college, I mean, of course, you need specific knowledge, but more important than specific knowledge. And you get a lot of specific knowledge if you're only going to study one stream. Physics, it's in Stevens, a lot of specific knowledge. But I think the purpose of going to college really is to be prepared for the 21st century, you know, to develop a love for learning, to know how to write well and communicate well, to be able to think critically, to be able to connect the dots and be able to deal with ambiguity. So I think these soft skills, these 21st century skills, are really what we need in higher education. And a multidisciplinary and holistic education prepares you better for that versus one that completely puts you into a straitjacket. Undoubtedly. And, and this love for learning, as you said, the K-12 seemed to have adapted to it much faster than the post-12th education. So you've seen a burst of IB schools coming in across. But somehow the university sprouting is not as much. So obviously now there's a big gap between these students who are coming out of IB schools and not having that exposure or the options as they step out. Why do you think that gap is so big between the two? I think it's more that uh, just people stick to the status quo. So the universities that already have followed a certain model, which is the old British model of putting students in a straight jacket. So I think the, what we need is we need to give it time where one is we have more institutions like Ashoka and there are many others that have come up. Kriya, Shivnadar University, Jindal, Flame. There's a whole host, Ahmedabad University. So I see about a dozen universities that have sprung up, new ones, that are mostly philanthropic in nature. And have this wider perspective. And they're, in a way, pioneering this effort, showing the way for a new model. It'll take some time for the existing ones to adjust. But I see change already happen on the margin. So I think as NEP 2020 gets implemented, and I think the first place it'll get implemented is this four-year program. I think the four-year program allows you more leeway, in a sense, more time to be able to do a combination of this breadth and depth. Right now, it's all depth. So it started with baby steps, but I think it will pick up as the implementation of NEP kicks in. But as you open new interdisciplinary programs, increase exposure, there is a brand new requirement for educators. True. That educator skill base is somehow far widely more available overseas where academia is encouraged and looked upon as a, as a very distinguished career option. That has not evolved in India as much yet. So is, is there a skill gap on the higher education side now? Yeah, I mean, I think that if we're going to move to a new model with the existing set of faculty at the existing institutions, it's not easy. If someone's been used to a certain way, they're not going to change the way they teach or do things differently. I think it behooves upon the leaders of these institutions to be visionary and to chart out a five, 10-year plan so recruit younger younger faculty anyway are much more open-minded. And the quality is very good uh, that you're able to recruit today. We have more PhD programs in India. We have people from abroad who want to come back. So I think there's an opportunity. It's not going to happen in a year or two. But over the next 10 years, I think that mixing and matching and giving students more choice, along with a core foundation program, is the direction that these institutions need to move in. Ashish, you yourself have been Yale to Harvard degrees on your walls. These are ambitional degrees on anybody's walls at this point. But how far is the Indian education system at this point above K-12 to become aspirational for these students? How far is it from 
for a larger number of pool to become a first choice option to stay in India? I I think it'll happen, Anupriya, for the simple reason, if you look at, obviously, I think some of our best students who want to go to the US to these top places will still go. I doubt if someone gets into Harvard, they're going to think twice about it. You know, they'll go for it, right? But if you look at the top 20 universities in the US, every year they take in about 600 undergraduates from India. That's it. You look at the top 30, it's probably about 1,000, just over 1,000 undergraduates. Right? So those are the aspirational brands in the US. It's the top 30 and about 1,000 students going there. We have hundreds of thousands of bright students, right? I think many more Indian universities, full universities, will pop up because the truth is, it's only a very narrow minority that will end up going to top universities abroad. And I think soon people will realize that there's no point going to university number 50 in America. There'll be 10 options in India that are better. But Ashish, people are taking that option of the number, not even number 50, and paying a very hefty sum. I agree with you, Anupaya. But I think, you know, at some point it will dawn on people that, look, if I have to pay somewhere around two and a half, three crore all in for this education, And my child eventually wants to come back to India, which most of them do, because anyway, your visa is for a short period of time in the US. There's no guarantee. And most kids anyway want to come back. If that's the case, are you better prepared for the workforce in India? I'm not sure, to be honest. I think it will dawn on people. Yes, if I'm getting into Harvard, I'm getting into Princeton, Stanford, by all means, take it. It's an opportunity of a lifetime. But if I'm going to go to some no-name university, you know, uh, in the U.S., I'd rather settle for a a top-notch Indian option. Ashish, before I let you go, final words from you. What really needs to change in the immediate term to make a big difference in the higher education space? I would say three things. One is that Ashoka is not only an interesting model from an educational standpoint. As a philanthropic project, we have 200 founders and donors. We have a very different governance structure. There's no owner of the university. I think that should inspire many others to create other more other philanthropic universities like Ashoka. So my desire would be that in the next decade, we can see a mushrooming of, in different states, you know, Ashoka-type private philanthropic projects popping up. So that's one. Two is, I hope that more universities offer this four-year. NEP is going to push them. And a faster adoption of this four-year program will be good. And a third is this idea of mix and match, which really NEP promises, which we need to really... So I don't think we need new policies. We just need to implement the NEP within state universities, within private universities. And then we need a whole new crop of new philanthropic private universities like Ashoka that can lead the way in different states and different geographies. Well, on that very positive note, Ashish, thank you so much for taking out time and a very packed schedule and, and being here with us on The Morning Brief. So the verdict is clear that the Indian education system at this time is making leaps and bounds, but there are miles to go. To take this conversation forward, founding Vice Chancellor of OP Jindal Global University, Professor C. Rajkumar joins me on this conversation on The Morning Brief. Thank you so much, Professor Kumar, for joining us. Hi, Anupriya. Pleasure to be here. First up, uh, Professor Kumar, take us through your assessment of the landscape for Indian private universities right now. It's been over a decade since OP Jindal set up. Uh, what is the change in demand on application, courses, uh, demand from students and parents? How have you seen that evolving over the last decade? 
Well, absolutely. It's a, it's a fantastic journey. And I think it is only fair to say that the opportunities that are being made available for young aspirational Indian students to be able to receive high quality education in India is something that universities are providing. In fact, one of the things I noticed uh, having studied in two Indian universities, Loyola College, Madras and University of Delhi, and three international universities, Oxford University, Harvard University, and the University of Hong Kong, I can tell you that today's um, young people are not looking at universities from the standpoint of public versus private. They are much more focused on the kind of opportunities that the individual institutions are able to provide in terms of quality of faculty, research ecosystem, international collaboration opportunities, internship opportunities, and the kind of research agenda of the faculty leading to publications. In a way, this public versus private discourse and debate that still remains in the larger regulatory architecture of India is not necessarily prevailing in the minds and hearts of both the students and the parents. And that's why they are indeed making those choices to be able to be part of institutions such as uh, OP Jindal Global University. Professor Kumar, but we've seen almost a big brain drain, if I may call it that, when it comes to student migration. And, you know, we were speaking to Ashish Dhawan from Ashoka University as well. And there is a large number that is still choosing to go to a second round or a third round US university because of some thought process of, I would say, branding exercise. How critical is it at this point for universities in India to step up on the branding game, which comes from employability, which will come from just brand awareness? Where is this gap right now of choice when it comes to an Indian private university versus going to just any university abroad? So Anupriya, I will not entirely associate the branding alone for this reason. First of all, let us be slightly internally critical as well. The expansion of Indian higher education, unfortunately, did not lead to the creation of only top-notch institutions of excellence. The same thing is true for private universities. While Jindal and Ashoka and a few others might have a particular type of philosophy and approach to education, I must confess that that may not be the case with many other private universities. Now, of course, you are absolutely right. Uh, many students from India end up going to not so reputed institutions abroad and we need to do something about it. But I would say to begin with, we need to develop an internal you know, evaluation process that will look closely into the quality of our own institutions. We need to be able to identify those flaws, both in terms of governance as well as curriculum and course structure and the need for hiring good faculty. We need to be able to provide opportunities for our students to be able to seek that education within India. And I think the fact remains that um, the education that we offer should lead to meaningful opportunities and outcomes in the form of jobs and other career development uh, aspects, all of which become important. We need to focus on quality and excellence that will attract the best minds to stay here. Professor Kumar, in your opinion, where is the gap? We've seen a big buildup in IB schools and edtech. But there's been a very slow build-up in the higher education side. Where does this gap lie? Well, I can be very candid with you. Uh, the reality is, historically, we are an over-regulated and under-governed sector. Uh, this uh, aspect of regulatory challenges have been quite uh, beautifully recognized by no less than the national education policy itself. 
the more recent policy relating to identifying institutions of eminence, including uh, we being given the status of an IOE, all of these measures are part of a continuum which is addressing the issue of regulatory challenges, but also regulatory reforms and also benchmarking Indian universities with the best in the world. If you see the debate and discourse that's happening in the country today, at least for the last few years now, the no less than the Honorable Prime Minister, but also the Education Minister, other serious um, educators are talking about rankings and the need for Indian universities to be benchmarked and ranked internationally so that we can recognize quality and excellence as a very critical component of assessing the worth of academic institutions. No longer we can take institutions for granted. And in any case, students now have very many opportunities, not only limited to India, but also other parts of the world for seeking higher education opportunities. Uh, Professor Kumar, last word from you. You recently had a tie-up with Cornell as well. Do you see more universities going this way of doing tie-ups so that they can have better exposure for their students getting an Ivy League brand as well on the platform that is available to their students? Yeah, well, absolutely. I think that's the way to go. We have, of course, partnerships with over 350 uh, universities spread across 67 countries, including our partners include Harvard and Columbia and uh, Oxford and Cambridge, and we've done numerous things with these institutions. And the idea is to promote substantive student exchange and faculty exchange and joint conferences and uh, opportunities that would bring us closer and ultimately contribute to the development of knowledge society. In some ways, these collaborations, I believe, are going to become far more meaningful than the idea of brick and mortar international university campuses being established in India. Unfortunately, I believe that that model is no longer economically viable, nor it is a sustainable model for the future. I think more and more innovation will be taking place in which, uh, you know, dual degree programs, training programs, uh, joint degree programs, and of course, other forms of exchanges between uh, faculty and students between Indian universities and universities from around the world, such as the, the ones that we have with Cornell is going to become the norm. And this is where there is enormous potential for India and Indian institutions to look at the world. On that positive note, Professor Kumar, thank you so much for taking our time and speaking to us here on the Economic Times Morning Brief. Years ago, we talked of brain drain as students studying from professional subsidized colleges left India to pursue top dollar jobs. That timeline has shifted much earlier. A research report indicates that over 2 million students will be studying abroad by 2024. And the total spend by these families is going to cross a whopping $80 billion. Undoubtedly, the students of today want options, exposure and most importantly, assurance. The likes of Ashoka and Jindal are rewriting a new chapter in the Indian education system. But it's clearly not enough. As we encourage industry to make in India, maybe the education industry needs to overall and encourage a Stay in India program. Well, that will have to be a wait and watch. You tuned in to the Great Student Migration on the Morning Brief here on the Economic Times. A big thank you for listening in and the team that put this together. On the sound side, Indranil Bhattacharji from the Economic Times, Vinay Joshi, who produced this episode, and executive producers Arajit Parman and yours truly. Have a great day ahead.